I'm really excited to introduce my guest today, uh, Rejoy Zachariah. I've known him since 2010. We went to college together, and I can tell you um, from firsthand experience that he is an incredible, um, genuine, and very bright person, um, and he's an even better friend. And I'm just so thankful for him to be on the first episode of the Honest Health Podcast. Rejoy, welcome to the podcast, dude. Um, thanks, Tushar. It's great to be here. Um, I'm ready to talk about, you know, whatever I can to help with this podcast. Yeah, so so just to introduce you um, to, to the people listening at home, um, Rejoy is an internal medicine doctor, is, is going to be an internal medicine doctor soon. He's a fourth-year medical student, and I, uh, I explained to him how I wanted to kind of bring um, just, you know, some honest healthcare information um, and, and talk about healthcare trends and, and, um, and the state of healthcare uh, on a podcast format. And he was so gracious to, to be like, yeah, I'm going to be on your first episode. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and yeah, dude, I really appreciate it. Um, um, so let's get right into it. I just have a few questions for you. Um, so, so what is something, you know, you treat, you see patients now you're doing, you were telling me that you uh, go on rotation. What's something that you wish patients would ask you when you treat them? Um, I know, I know there's a lot of things that you kind of have to probably go through a checklist and whatnot, but, um, what's something that you wish when patients came in that they kind of came up and asked you, you know, about? Sure. Um, so, you know, just want to say a little bit about why I want to do internal medicine first. Um, just really quickly, um, I see internal medicine as a window for me to be advocates for my patients, to have them come in, um, and walk through the door of the hospital or the clinic, and no matter how confusing the language of medicine can be, um, challenge myself to translate that, that that medical care to them and allow patients to take ownership of their own medical care. That is my first and foremost goal: is to just empower people in their own medical care to take better care of themselves. So, in line with that. Um, when patients come in or people come in um, to our office, um, and one thing that should be clarified between the the physician and the patient is the goals of care. Like, what is the patient expecting to get out of this um, this conversation, this meeting? Um, usually, when someone comes in, as for me as a medical student coming into the office, we ask, "Oh, first question is usually, you know, um, how can we help you today? Mm-hmm. Um, what are we doing here?" Um, and it's really important that the physician and the patient are on the same line of thinking. You know, we can have one patient that's just there, uh, you know, for their normal checkup um, and don't really want to change too much in their regimen. Even Mm -hmm. if there's certain medications or certain things that can help them more, Mm -hmm. they're not too interested. Versus there's other people that want to do anything and everything they can in for to better manage their care. Um, And they're willing to do a lot more steps in terms of their exercise regimen and their daily lifestyle to change in order to get to that goal. So clarifying those goals, I think, is something that's really important and should be done towards the beginning of any kind of patient encounter. Cool. And, and that's something that you, you do with your patients. Like, you, like obviously, you, know, you have limited time with each patient when you, when you treat them. So how is it that you maybe, like, how exactly are you setting these goals with the patients um, when so, they come in? Yeah, so uh, that's definitely important uh, to clarify. Um, it, it can be done with something as quickly as a- asking a patient, you know, uh, what do you expect to get out of this or what is your desire, you know, mm-hmm. for the end goal of, the, of this visit? Um, and just getting a little bit more information, um, talking with the patient, it really helps on our end to know, you know, they want to try everything and anything they can 
or you know they want to go a different route and we usually work with with the patient for each encounter like that okay cool um yeah that's great along the same lines um i've noticed that uh when it comes to healthcare information um that patients are able to find on their own it's extremely difficult to find reliable information do you do you recommend that patients come in with kind of like a baseline knowledge of you know what's what's kind of uh what's wrong with them for lack of a better word or um or do you think that's kind of risky for a patient to kind of come in knowing like you know i know what the best course of treatment is um so I, I definitely agree with um, what you said at first. Is it's important for patients to have like a baseline awareness of what's going on, um, and that can come in the form of a simple Google search. Mm. And I also agree that it can be risky uh, if you type in certain symptoms like you know nausea, headache, uh, indigestion. You might go up on WebMD and find that <laughs> cancer could be yeah. uh, one of the possible diagnoses that you may have. Right. Now, of course, uh, uh, going to a doctor, they're going to work up on a lot more things. Um, and that's not going to be, that might not be the first thing that they think of. Um, but at the same time, I do agree, um, like having a conversation with your with your physician can be really valid, really important. Um, and starting with some kind of baseline information, just like talking to a, pa- uh, a, a doctor is like, hey, I know I have this um, and I know it, it you know, it, this and this is related to it. Can you just tell me a little bit more on, you know, what it is or how I can better work and better manage this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure a physician would be, you know, would be glad to share that kind of information with you. It should be a two-way kind of conversation, sure. not that a physician is just uh, telling you exactly what you need to do. Right. Um, you're working on this, like I said before, as a team. Right. And that really falls into uh, like quality of care, right? Like when you go to a hospital setting. Um, the better the doctors treat you in general, the better that the patients feel like they are being treated, the better their prognosis could be at some point, you know, in, um, in terms of, in terms of their outlook for, for what, for their disease or their illness. Yeah. The relationship between a physician and patient can actually lead to better outcomes for the patient. Right. That's great. Um, and so, so what are some cases that you see over and over again? Like when you're, when you're in a hospital setting, and and maybe you want to tell a little bit about where you work and what your kind of day to day is like. Sure. As well. Yeah. So right now I'm a, currently a fourth year medical student. At the towards the end of my training uh, in medical school, um, training in New Jersey, and looking to getting matched and go into residency in internal medicine, which is another three years of training before becoming an attending physician. Um, at that stage, I'll have options to uh, specialize in things like cardiology or pulmonary critical care, uh, uh, GI, nephrology, things like that. Or if I want, I can be working as a hospitalist and working with patients directly at the hospital. Um, just a couple of options. Um, and in my <laughs> limited time, uh, I can't say I have the biggest uh, sample size of patients that I've seen. Um, but you know, just some common, uh, comorbidities or things that patients already come in with at the hospital is like Mm -hmm. high blood pressure, you know, uh, cholesterol, diabetes, um, you know, these things are like the bread and butter of medicine. And we see that with a lot of patients, but granted people that come into the hospital are not 
uh, representative sample of the whole the population as a whole. We mm. usually get like some of the sickest people that come in, um, and that's what I'm seeing. That one or two percent of the population is that is that because you is, you work at a specialized hospital that you're getting the sickest patients that are coming in? Or? So so I work at an academic hospital, and we we are a center where people patients can come directly to our hospital. But more chances than not, we actually have patients that are referred to from other hospitals just for. Um, better care, better management that we can provide mm-hmm. with our resources. Cool. So we were talking a little bit before, um, and, and you were telling me um, something recent that happened. Um, uh, you know, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your brother and, and how, how it was like for you to be on the other side of the white coat, like you just said, um, if you want to talk about that. Sure, yeah. So um, about a year ago, while I was in my third year of medical school, um, I got a phone call from my brother uh, my brother is, at the time was towards the end of his uh, um, training for uh, in law school um, in New York City, um, and it was a pretty scary phone call. Um, very late at night, he was telling me that um, we had known that he was sick for like a week, just having symptoms like you know GI upset stomach, um, like fever, things like that, um, and. Um, he was just trying to take care of it on his own, even though we had told him to go to a doctor and things like that. It was something, you, you know, someone in your mid-20s, you want to kind of, you know, take care of yourself and, you know, take that ownership that you can handle yourself. Of course. Um, you know, which is understandable, but, you know, my parents and I had been pushing him to go to a doctor because it hadn't been letting up for almost 10 days or so. Um, when he finally ended up going to an ER because he felt so weak and fatigued, uh, he was telling me um, they did some blood work and the, the lab values were um, pretty scary. Um, and the doctors at first had uh, told them it's possible that he might have cancer. And that was the information that he was relaying to me on that phone call. Um, so... We've been through a lot uh, since that that first phone call. Um, My brother ended up being in the hospital for about six and a half weeks. Um, And during that time, we were working with a hematology oncologist, which is someone who works with cancers, um, uh, especially blood cancers, which my brother had, uh, a type of leukemia. Um, And just seeing that and being on this other side of, of medicine really, like, changed my perspective i ended up being just turning from someone who was just learning about medicine and trying to understand it to someone on the other side uh you know explaining concepts to my parents and my brother during a scary time um and trying to be a you know a mantle of comfort for them you know and support and learning what what really it means to be supportive to a family member who's going through a very very tough um time so it was, it was it was a 180 for me. Um, t- I took some time off of medical school just to do that. Um, and the people at my medical school were so supportive that they were able to let me do that and adjust my own schedule uh, during that year of med school. Um, and I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, so I'm glad to share anything um, regarding to that just to help because I know anyone who's listening now... Um, it's easy uh, to, to learn this and study uh, medicine in one regard, but it's a completely another ballgame to experience it on your own, either to you or to a close close loved one. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I couldn't even imagine what that must have been like for, for you and your family. Um, 
yeah, I guess, uh, you know, keeping a cool head um, was seemed like your priority once you got that phone call, especially for your parents. Um, so I guess I just wanted to take this, um, you know, down a different lane. Um, when someone gets the diagnosis in cancer, let's say, what is the kind of the first thing that they're going to be thinking about in terms of like, um, like what to do next? Like, I know that's a very scary thing to, to be kind of told. Um, I guess like, how do you, how does one kind of keep their head on straight after that? In your experience, at least. So, I mean, I can't speak for, um, like myself receiving that diagnosis, but I can, I guess, kind of speak for as a, a close friend or a loved one to someone that has a diagnosis like that or similar life-altering disease, um, the reaction. Um, and it's a tough one. There's no guidelines on, you know, what to do, what's the best way um, to react to this kind of news. But I can say from personal experience, something that worked for me um, and something I learned to be a you know very supportive for my brother during that time um and it falls in line with um a, a circle a circle of support so imagine a circle um and the, the 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 center of the circle if you're looking at it is the person in need um and so if we're talking about in in medicine we're looking at the patient if we're talking about you know for my case specifically it's my brother during this time in need after receiving you know this terrible news um he's the one at at the forefront he's the one that we should all be supporting um because he's the one that's personally going through it now around that's that pinpoint um is a small circle and that small circle includes the people that my brother um looks for support in um and that could be uh our doctor um it could be my parents it's me um it's the people that you know we're most um we're, we're most uh communication with my brother we we have the most face time with him during this time and it's our goal it's our responsibility to be supporting my brother during this time at the same time as we're pushing our support in towards him he's uh taking out on us any kind of frustrations any kind of worries um that he's going through and we're just absorbing that um that's our duty and that's our responsibility and that's how we know that this circle of support can work um and it can get really hard, um, um, you know. Just seeing my brother through this, like I, I didn't want what I didn't want to happen was me, me or someone on our side of the circle, you know, telling my brother, you know, how much of an inconvenience this is, or you know, how much of a struggle it is for us that he's going through this. Like that's the opposite effect right. of what the support the support's supposed to be going in right. as the frustration and worries come out. And it's, it's a very tough job being either in the center um, or on the sidelines. So in order to expand the circle and to raise support, we have, for myself, I had uh, people that were supporting me during that time, you right, know? Right, right. Um, and so we expand the circle to another, another circle that's just outside that. And that's the support circle for me, for my parents, um, for the people around my brother that we can reach out to when we are trying to support my brother because it's not a 24 hour 7 24 7 thing that we can just be in the room with my brother going through right. everything he and neither does he want us he, he didn't want us to be in that room 24 7 with him mm. you know um he needed some time to himself 
And that was the time for us to kind of recalibrate and get the support we needed so that we can be 100% for him when we were there. Have you found that patients who don't have the support of Circle um, kind of break down or don't do as well as patients who do? Like in your experience, have you noticed like patients who maybe might be alone or maybe don't have um, close family members or friends? Um, like I couldn't even imagine what patients who's alone must right, go through. Right, right. I can't say that definitively, but I can say, um, I, you know, it's it, it makes a world of difference. Like coming to, you know, the doctor or the hospital, wherever you're going with someone that supports you and everything, you know, versus uh, going by yourself or uh, going without any kind of support system. It's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because like a lot, if you're with, a, you're talking about a diagnosis that's life altering, um, it's really hard to put that on one person's shoulders alone. Um, and then that's how the circle of support works is we're trying to dissipate that, that force so that we can somehow all, you know, make the load a little lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, again, it's the person with the condition that, you know, has to go through the, the brunt force of it, the brute force right. of it. Um, yeah, for sure, man. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, um, I know we were talking earlier, a couple of days ago, you were telling me about one of your patients um, that you were treating um, recently. Um, do you want to touch a little bit about, about that? Touch on that? Sure. Um, so during... Uh, my rotation in medicine, it was like an eight-week rotation that I was working at the hospital. One patient that came to mind, and granted, this was after, um, um, you know, seeing my brother in the hospital, and he was getting the care that he needed. Um, um, after that, um, when I was uh, going back to the hospital for the rest of my rotations, I came across a person uh, who came in for something as simple as, like, low back pain. Um and granted, this person had a history of a lot of different types of cancers, um, five cancers to be exact. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it turns out, uh, uh, so he had like lung cancer, bladder cancer, um, two different types of skin cancer, um, and prostate cancer, um, an older gentleman. Um, and it turns out uh, during the Vietnam War, he was exposed to something called Agent Orange. Right. Yeah. Yep. That it's a pesticide that was sprayed along, you know, the the forest in Vietnam to try yeah. to clear, you know, you know, yeah. for soldiers to see better. Mm-hmm. Only years later, they found out this this was like very carcinogenic. Yeah. Um, a lot of soldiers were affected. Wow. Um, and he was American. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't see, you know, a person that has this many types of, types of cancer. That's not a common thing at right. all. Um, it was very rare. Um, and so for when someone comes in with back pain. Um, you know, we, we take it seriously, but we're not thinking something, you know, life-altering. But sure. for someone with five different types of cancers in the past uh, who comes in with back pain, we can think maybe this might be metastatic from one of his previous cancers. Sure. Um, and, and could you just define for people who might not know what metastatic means? Yeah, sure. So um, metastatic meaning like one of his previous cancers uh, was able to spread from where it was, either through the blood, through the, you know, an, another source to get from where it was to a new spot and pretty much seed there um kind of grow from there exactly so it turned out for this patient who i'm not going to name um he he, uh had his uh back well his one of his skin cancers actually uh seeded into his lower back and it was growing there right 
Um, and it was that was the source of his low back pain. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you sure you don't want to name him? Because I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just. I'm just kidding. Um, so, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about inflammation. Um, I think that's kind of a topic that, uh, at least, it's a word that gets thrown uh, thrown around a lot. Um, chronic disease is like caused by inflammation mostly and i don't really to be honest i'm not really sure how and i've been waiting to ask you this and i purposely didn't google search it um too in depth but like how would you describe inflammation like does inflammation i imagine inflammation looking like kind of like a like a yellow liquid in your body that just like starts flowing around and causes disease wherever it goes and like the more you smoke and the more like cheeseburgers you eat you just start getting more inflammation or whatever. But um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that in your, in your experience and what exactly, um, you know, how that affects patients. Sure. I mean, just wanted to clarify when you're talking about eating cheeseburgers, I think you're talking about bloating to be, <laughs> to be more specific. Um, inflammation, to put it simply, is like your body's reaction um, um, to anything, any kind of, uh, you know, small trauma, um, for example, you cut your finger, um, your finger is going to try to heal. And in order to do, to do that, it gets some warm, it gets painful, uh, tender, um, and there's some swelling. And that's all in the process of inflammation, your body reacting to this kind of trauma. Um, inflammation happens in all sorts of ways. Um, and speaking in the process of chronic diseases, there's certain diseases um, that your body is almost, in a sense, attacking itself. Um, a lot of immune-related diseases works in that way. Um, for example, um, if you've heard of anything like Crohn's disease, um, mm. so that's Crohn's disease is a disorder of your GI tract, your gastrointestinal tract, which goes from your mouth all the way through uh, your esophagus to your stomach, intestines, and out through uh, your rectum and anus. Um, and so in Crohn's disease, it's possible that you get um, some inflammation going around in any part of your GI tract. Um, some people that are diagnosed with this, usually it's genetic. And so um, if you have a family history of this, the chances are it's more likely that you're able to get it than the average person in the population. Um, you can have inflammation in any part of your GI tract. Um, and if that's not under control, you can get flare-ups of this kind of inflammation. Mm. Um, and that can be from any kind of random trigger. Mm. Um, so <laughs> inflammation uh, is a good thing when it's done right and your body you know, reacts to something. Um in a small controlled manner it's protective in that way you're saying definitely but in in another sense of it it can be your your body's worst nightmare if it goes if this process is unregulated and goes out of control mm. and then when it happens in that matter we have some tools in our arsenal in medicine to help control that inflammation or help control those episodes but at the same time um there's not always a breakthrough career okay so so just so that my mind is kind of put to ease, what does inflammation look like? <laughs> like if you were to, um, you know, if you were to like cut someone open and then see an inflamed kidney or whatnot, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, no, what, no. What, is it, what does that look like? Uh, well, I mean, so it, it's it's swollen, it's hot, it's painful. Um, and it's not yellow, just to... Well, I mean, what we call yellow is the, the pus that can be related right. to okay. the swelling or the inflammation, okay. but that's not necessarily yellow itself, okay. no. 
Okay, gotcha. Um, cool. And yeah, so so what are some other, I guess, um, other things that you see coming in into into the uh, clinic setting related to inflammation? Like I know you, you mentioned Crohn's disease, but like, do you see other like really major cases where you know the patient maybe could have done something preventative to uh, to ma- to like ensure that they weren't so inflamed in whatever area of their body? I don't know how to answer that to be honest. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more <laughs> along the lines of like uh, diabetes. Like I, I I've been told that um, you know the the more you more sugar you eat, the more like you know unrefined car- refined carbs that you eat the more your body produces inflammation and then therefore you start to get to type 2 diabetes um uh, eventually from from that point on well they're produced so in in type 2 diabetes your body is producing a lot of insulin and we produce insulin when we have a lot of glucose uh in our blood um and the insulin pretty much opens up gateways to push the glucose out of our blood to wherever our body needs it, be it our muscles, you know, our, and other organs. Um, and they can use the glucose. If you remember from like high school biology, it's glucose is like, you know, the energy that our body cells uses, um, you know, to use, uh, to change it into usable energy or ATP, um, for, for our body. So, um, Glucose is good for our body, but if it's given in too much, it can actually damage um, blood vessels and cause a lot of microtrauma, um, and that can lead uh, to very severe conditions. Um, mainly, the big diabetes complications being like retinopathy, where you have too much high blood pressure in your eyes, and can lead, it's a leading cause of blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, things like uh, uh, diabetic neuropathy where um, you're losing sensation um, and maybe getting pins and needles feelings um, in your toes and uh, fingers and that can move up because those are like the, the smaller nerves where it usually acts first um, and also things like nephropathy where uh, diabetes is affecting uh, your kidneys um, and that can cause a lot of problems with urination um, and affect the you know in the long term the life of your kidneys Mm -hmm. um so diabetes just something as simple as glucose being in your blood in high amounts can lead to a lot of big complications and it all happens when uh your body's creating a lot of insulin um but with a long-term amount of glucose staying in your blood Mm -hmm. it creates more and more insulin and that insulin in uh as a reaction, it's not working as effectively, and your body develops a sort of resistance to insulin. I see. That's what diabetes is. Gotcha. Um, so I don't think we touched on this, but what are some cases that you see coming into the hospital over and over again? Um, kind of just like repetitive cases that you that you kind of wish, you know, I wish pa- these patients maybe took a little bit better care of themselves and, and kind of knew how to. Um, sure. Um, well, so I think one of the biggest problems um, I'm seeing in the clinic is a lot of um, times a patient can come in for like recurrent, you know, high blood pressure, or re- recurrent, you know, um, any type of illness. And a big thing is like making sure that they're complying with the medications that they're already on. Um, when doctors prescribe these medications, they're meant to. Um, 
most of the time to be working, you know, synergistically with each other. Sometimes the medications work with each other, um, and missing doses, um, can be a really big thing. Um, certain drugs, when you miss a couple of doses, or like, for example, if you're following an antibiotic regimen for, um, a a recent bacterial infection you've had, you want to to go through like, you know, the full course, you know, which is always at least five full days. So they say, um, and that's because your body is, is trying to fight these, these bacteria and, uh, missing a dose of that can be, you know, allow for, you know, what we're afraid of is like resistance within the bacteria to grow even stronger and grow, uh, in, you know, more, more densely. So, so you're saying that that's kind of, um, like it's, it's worse for someone who has high blood pressure to miss their antibiotic regimen. Is that where you're sorry? Looking? No. So with uh, with high blood pressure, we're looking at antihypertensives. Right. Um, sorry, I was mo- moving a little back and forth between topics, but um, it's very important, you know, for someone with high blood pressure or hypertension, we call it, um, to stay with you know the regimen they're on, to be checking their blood pressures at home. Um, a lot of time, forty to fifty percent of patients with high blood pressure. Um, you know, uh, when they come to the office, uh, and they see, you know, a doctor is checking their, their blood pressure, it's higher in the office than it is at home. And we call that white coat hypertension. It's a real thing that's been studied. Um, and so it's really important for those, uh, uh, people to be checking their blood pressures at home. We, that information, when you bring that to the office is more reliable than just one check in the office. Sure. Sure. Um, so, so what exactly is the white coat blood pressure caused by? Like just being nervous or? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, physiological causes for blood pressure, meaning things that you can do on your own that can increase your blood pressure. You know, uh, stress is a big one. You know, <laughs> we're, uh, our clinic, I'm currently working in a hypertension clinic right now uh, for rotation. And it takes about a one hour drive from, you know, uh, uh, where, where I'm living, uh, to get there to this place. Um, and on this road, it's notorious for having a lot of traffic, a lot of, you know, traffic and congestion, uh, getting there during rush hour. So when we have patients coming in, um, in, in the early morning or late afternoon, uh, and they've been driving on this road, uh, we, we see a lot of times that they, they blame their blood pressure rightfully. So on, on the traffic that they've been in, uh, some ways that we try to, um, you know, take into account this white coat hypertension is we uh, leave the room when uh, we're taking the blood pressure. It's like an automated blood pressure cuff, and it takes three readings, and it takes the average of those three readings um, based on a recent, uh, you know, a study that was done uh, just a few years ago called the SPRINT trial. It was a huge study done for high blood pressure looking at um, what's the best goal for management in terms of what numbers for blood pressure. Um that's the same kind of uh, method they use and they recommended, and it's being seen more and more in offices uh, nationwide. Okay, awesome. Thanks for that. Um, so, so yeah, Rajoy, I just want to really thank you for your time. Um, I know, uh, you know, this this episode is going to be very helpful for a lot of people. Um, so, just before I close out the episode, uh, what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> what do I like to do for fun? Yeah. Um, sure, uh, I love. Um, I, I studied abroad in Costa Rica for four months during college, and I visited Colombia 
for and I lived there for a month in med school. Um, one thing I really like that I got to learn in both those countries is salsa dancing. So in my spare time when I can, I really enjoy listening to and dancing to salsa music, merengue, bachata, some different tropical dance forms that I learned there. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely something that takes uh, some of my stress away. Um, <laughs> and I definitely recommend anyone who's listening uh, to give it a shot. You'd be surprised by how easy it is to learn a few basic steps. Maybe it could lower people's high blood pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can, yeah. Um, great, man. Uh, what would you? What advice would you give to someone who is maybe in the middle of applying to med school or is thinking of becoming an, a doctor? Um, what, what would you say to them? Um, so I guess one big thing, um, there's... This is a really long journey, and I'm just in you know in the midst of this journey. Um, uh, going into the medical field is a big calling. Uh, you'll be doing a lot of good, um, um, and it's very rewarding in that sense. Um, at the same time, it's important to understand that you know n- no part of this journey is pretty easy. Whether it is you know studying your pre uh, your your class, your courses just to get into medical school, going through medical school, um, um, going through rotations in medical school, uh, going through residency as well, um, and even being a doctor at the very end, your your whole lifestyle is a life of learning and living and growing, learning from mistakes and keep moving on. Um, it's a very demanding career. Um, and so my, my recommendation is to just really think hard about what you're trying to get out of medicine and yeah take it from there uh i really it's important to look into a mentor um and having someone above me that i saw that i want to reach to that level and modeling you know what they did to get to where they are really helped me to get to where i am and that's how i keep going for the next stage of my life going into residency i look at really good residents and you know i talk to them and see how how they're doing and how, how to get there and that's always been my goal a big part of that is I would say is think less and do more uh, uh, because there's a lot of things that you must do and uh, thinking too long and hard about it, uh, time goes by. Um, yeah, so if it's something you're really interested in, I would say um, learn more about it, talk to people that are in it and just do it. Awesome. All right, Rejoy, thank you for your time. Um, this is, uh, again, this is Rejoy Zachariah. Thank you for listening to the Honest Health Podcast. Uh, catch you later. Thanks for being on, Rejoy. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Like, so, for example, like, you're using a lot of energy throughout the day, and it's a time for rest where... Because um, when we say repair ourselves, that means like we're damaging ourselves throughout the day, you know? Like Isn't that true though? In in, in a sense. I, I don't know. Like it's so like there's other animals that require a lot less sleep. There's a lot a lot of animals that require a lot more species. But they don't sleep. but none of those animals live to be a hundred years. Old. Well, Turtles live for thousands of <laughs> Yeah, but they also sleep years. like like they're very like slow they their energy sleep patterns, but <laughs> their energy expenditure is low, like you could say, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they say it's really good for venous blood flow, uh, 
about like you know a lot of blood is being punted like really important organs throughout the day and this is like your venous flows where all that gunk and whatever you know excess in your body you know uh drains like either out of your body or when you out sleep of that organ yeah when you sleep you have increased venous flow to get it out of like you know like stuff from your brain and things like the the byproducts able to drain out um you know out of your system so that's one reason i don't know i'm doing a rotation in sleep medicine next month so oh, i'm gonna be asking yes. i'm gonna be asking a lot of these questions maybe i maybe, maybe uh we'll part study. part two of the joke coming <laughs> back on. I mean, because yeah I, i'm really curious you know it's like it's like a third of our lives you know does it have to be you know some people are really good on just six hours of sleep, you know, and sometimes when you sleep like nine, ten hours, you feel asleep uh, more tired than before you went to sleep. <laughs> so I, I don't know, man. Like ideal sleep is very important. But, I know, I know yeah. this is sub- subjective, but like when I'm running on three hours of sleep, like I mean, I think like, if you're not used to it, like you just feel like sh- like shit. Like, no, no, definitely. Like it's it's recommended to have like at least for growing people like eight to ten hours of sleep. so that's the thing so, though yeah. if it's recommended like why is it recommended it's probably recommended because if you don't sleep enough then it's like well i mean you're also growing when is dur- during puberty like the biggest growth spurts are like five i don't know if you're this like 5 a.m in the morning you get like the biggest growth spurts when you're sleeping <laughs> so, this i did not there's, know there's like a certain hormone that's being released during that time but th- that's like growth the human growth hormone hgh no it's uh, it's something else but it might be like an agonist of that like related um I don't know. There's <laughs> just some, some like tidbits we hear. I, I don't have too much information about that. Um, yeah, but yeah, we we need it. We just don't know why exactly we need it. Like I, I think that's the general consensus. But everyone like common knowledge. I mean, like common sense is like you need a good night's sleep to do well for the rest of the day. But I can't say that you know during sleep this and this happens, which is super crucial towards having a good day the next day. I don't know. I I don't have an answer for that. But again, I'm not an expert to give an answer to that. I'll ask the sleep doctor. Please do. (laughs) Um, Cool. So what are some things that you do for your personal health? Sure. Um, So (laughs) I, uh, I really like running. I picked this up as a New Year's resolution. And I got to say, the first week after new year's was the most i've run in my entire life and since then not as much <laughs> which i should be doing i think i ran 19 miles in one week wow yeah that's awesome i just started i was like you know what it was really cold too i was running outside because i'm not really motivated on a treadmill hmm. um just seeing landmarks and like all right i'm gonna run to that stop sign and then all right after i reach that stop sign yeah. i'm gonna run to that tree just having like really like repetitive short-term goals hmm really helped me when I was first starting to run and I realized that I really enjoyed it after a while. Hmm. Um, all I did was really, I would, no matter how cold it was, even if it was snowing, even during the bomb cyclone, which we had in the Northeast with like, I don't know, like feet, feet multiple feet of snow that we had. Yeah. Uh, I was running outside, um, just in two hoodies <laughs> oh my God. and, and, uh, and shorts. Actually during the snowstorm, I was wearing, uh, uh, boots, but usually, <laughs> usually I'm running in sneakers, um, and it's just good. I, I I don't really necessarily have a plan, and when I try to do with like a like a defined plan of you know long term running like 
having a goal, I usually don't stick to those things. But I mm-hmm. realize if I can get myself to get change and just go out the door, I will run somewhere. And for some, uh, however period of time, you know, whatever period of time I run for, just getting out the door and running is way more than half the battle. Because yeah. once I'm out there and once I'm in my zone, I'll be going. Um, yeah, and that's, I guess, my recommendation is just to think of something, think less, do more, just do it, and see where you go. Um, you'll surprise yourself. It's great advice, man. That's uh, I know I, I know if uh, even I took that advice sometimes, I would be, um, who knows where I'd be. <laughs> you'd, be uh, you'd be out there running. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be in Alaska by now, maybe. Forrest Gump, yeah. Um, <laughs> so what is one resource that you would recommend to patients to kind of take health into their own hands to take their health into their own hands yeah yeah so you know definitely something if you open up your smartphone and you look at like you know any like uh article you might see in in the news app or whatnot you know it can be scary some of the things you see um and i can see how it's very important to have a kind of resource It, it can be very important to have a kind of resource where that you can rely on. Uh, one thing um, that there's a lot of evidence for that we use as clinicians in practice is a uh, resource from, uh, it's called USPSTF. <laughs> uh, it's the US Preventative uh, Services Task Force. Um, and pretty much they have uh, recommendations based on a lot of data, you know, multiple studies, um, you know, over thousands of people over extended periods of time and based on that they grade their their uh recommendations like giving it like an a rating if it has like the best evidence behind it uh, for you know maximum benefit towards their patients you know and then from there they have a and b um going down um so if you look online if you google this um can you say it one more time what is it sure it's a u.s preventative uh services task force u.s preventative services task force yeah so that'll that'll be in the show notes uh for sure um from there you can get screening guidelines and what we use for in our practices of like when people should be coming to the doctor when they should be getting certain types of screenings such as like you know an x-ray or an ultrasound um when they should be taking things like aspirin for example uh when they should be getting screening for breast cancer um cervical cancer like a pap smear things like that and for how often depending on which age group you are um it's really uh something that doctors should be having down packed in their in their uh own you know clinics but for people that are just curious wanting to know like uh, even if they're feeling 100 percent healthy and well um what's a good time to go to the doctor um outside of your yearly checkup this is something i would recommend for people to look at so that being said what are some of the main um diagnostics or or checkups that that maybe people in their 20s should do um, sure. Um, so if you're sexually active, um, something that we look for is like for STD screening and, um, you know, we can be giving, you know, 
uh, treatment for people that have STDs, and for for that we need to be be checking for those kind of things, um, especially people you know uh, twenty six and under. We can be giving certain things versus you know people outside of that age group. Um, certain things we also look at, especially for women, is um, they can start uh, screening for like things like cervical cancer with like Pap smears. In their uh, in their twenties, they should be uh, checking they, for that. They can start at as early as age twenty one for that, um, and then. Um, of course, we will be looking for other things as well. But um, Pap smear is like a, a basic thing that people can be doing at starting at a young age. Um, for men, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, for male specific uh, things that we we don't really screen screen for prostate cancer anymore. Um, we found that like the screening marker we had sometimes causes more harm in terms of all the different uh, studies that goes on after that than actually you know increasing duration of life for people with actual prostate cancer. So is this what lead time bias is? So lead time bias is um, you know the effect of how certain screening protocols uh, sometimes when you have. A, you know, a, a better tool for screening a certain disease, you're actually just picking up the disease at an earlier stage. Um, and so like that screening tool may be effective, but it has to be taken in the context of, you know, at what stage that the disease is being screened. Um, and that's something that clinicians need to be thinking about more when they're, you know, uh, recommending certain screening tools. So, so why exactly is that dangerous? Like the like a new screening tool, how does that affect? Um, so whenever there's a new screening tool in the works of being researched and, and studied upon, um, it, it has to go through a lot of rigorous um, uh, uh, testing against the gold standard for screening for a certain type of disease. Um, I actually do want to give a specific example, but sure. I kind of want to like research it more before giving it, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So I'll, I'll come back to that a little later. No worries. Um, but getting back to what you were saying um, about how prostate cancer, so that's not screened for anymore, even for older patients? or So, I mean, we don't screen everyone, every guy for prostate cancer. Something called um, PSA or prostate-specific antigen. Um, it's something that's, you know, released by... Uh, tissue in your prostate, uh, even from like uh, direct, you know, physical irritation of the prostate. Um, but it's been shown previously to, for people that have prostate cancer, usually their PSA is more elevated than our quote unquote normal range. Um, so why do, why do you not check for it anymore? Because it's also increased in a lot of other conditions. Um, and even just from a uh, digital rectal, rectal exam, mm. after that, the PSA can be increased as well. Um, so and like it hasn't been... false positive? Yeah, there's a lot of false positives. And all false positives can lead to like a lot more testing and things, more invasive procedures. Um, and the fact that prostate cancer itself usually doesn't really uh, kill people. Um, you know, it's not like an acute... Uh, type of cancer a lot of people die with prostate cancer but not because of prostate cancer Um, there's so much there's so (laughs) many charities on prostate cancer that collect money what uh well i mean the scary part of it that is it's a cancer but we have a lot of medical treatment for it um and you can do uh there's procedures uh, depending on where where the cancer is specifically that we can like resect the cancer to um there's no such thing as a baby cancer um and every cancer should be taken very seriously but it's something that we have a lot 
better prognosis uh, gotcha. for compared to other cancers. So, so along the same lines, should should someone who is maybe eating healthy, physically active, um, you know, kind of doing everything that they can, and they're maybe in their twenties, they're in their thirties, like should they be getting tested for various different types of cancer? Like, for example, maybe someone who's lived in a city their whole life, should that person be getting screened for lung cancer? Or someone who, um, I don't know, various other different different things. Like, like is that kind of being a hypochondriac at that point? Or is that like, uh, you know, being safe? Like, should everyone be screening for cancer? So I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, and... So definitely, I'm going to use some of the evidence from what I was talking about before, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, just going online and looking at the recommendations. Specifically for lung cancer screening, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends annual screening for lung cancer with a certain type of screening called a low-dose CT scan. In adults ages 55 to 80 who have a 30-pack year smoking history, um, so meaning they've smoked, you know, a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years or mm. two packs of cigarettes a day for 15 years. Those are the only people that should get lung screenings? So p- people in this age group should definitely get screening at least once with this imaging tool. Not saying that people in any other age category shouldn't, um, shouldn't um, but this is what we have evidence for. I don't think just because, uh, you know you're having trouble breathing uh or i mean or you just smoked you know a couple of packs of cigarettes um and you're living in a city um you should be concerned for your life that you have lung cancer um not saying that smoking cigarettes is not bad for you you should definitely not be smoking cigarettes (laughs) definitely definitely but the evidence we have is people who have smoked uh this extensively um and you know either they currently smoke or they've quit within only within the past 15 years they should be getting screening definitely definitely for 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 lung cancer um and just to go back to that uh there's nothing uh there's no lifestyle so active and so you know you know you could be like exercising so well um you know every single day hours a day eating the best food and you know you can still get a terrible disease you know no one is immune from you know certain diseases um so it's still important to get your yearly checkup from a doctor you know certain symptoms that you might overlook or think that's just a cold or you know uh something that you can get over um it's really important to work as a team with you and the doctor if there's one message i can get out from this is just don't overlook anything specifically looking back between me and my family certain things like uh, we need to take proactive steps to go and get things checked out when you can um and yeah just be a part of the team that medicine is that's that's awesome advice for joy um so i'm just gonna dig a little deeper here like i guess my question is does it do more harm than good to get checked up for things if you're early in your life if you're in your 20s like if you're in your 30s like like someone who doesn't smoke or someone who, um, you know, has really no reason to be having these advanced um, cancers, like, is it a waste for them to go check themselves for these cancers or for other diseases? Or do you think it's still kind of worthwhile? 
if, I, if they have the means to do that. I just want to make clear that like when you go to a doctor, there's no such thing that they can order, which is like you know full cancer screening to screen for right. every single type right. of cancer that's possible. Uh, that doesn't exist, and neither if it, such a thing exists, would it be cost effective? Um, and we're looking towards more and more in this era of you know very expensive healthcare is looking for a cost effective care for our patients. Um, so it's worthwhile definitely i would say for people to go to the doctor at least once a year for the yearly checkup um you know to establish a relationship with their physician and make sure they're both on the same terms of like i said at the very beginning having goals of care establishing what they want out of their health care um and acting towards those goals um and i think a relationship with a physician or any practitioner that you're looking for is very vital to do that. A long-term relationship can go a long way in, you know, both for the uh, physician and for the patient mm-hmm. in their health. So, so, so like switching doctors might not be the, the best move. Like, um, cause I know there's a lot of different services now that you can use like on, um, on, on your smartphone, on the webs, on, on the internet, um, to just like be able to find a doctor whenever. In fact, there, there's a whole company built out of this. Um, I guess you're saying like having a relationship with a doctor kind of helps you uh, helps you and the doctor understand like okay like year over year seems like this patient's health is either good or you know something seems a little awry for whatever reason. Yeah. So um, having that relationship with a, f- a physician is I-, I would say very important. But at the same time, um, if you want to get a second opinion, by all means, like talk to someone else. Um, I'm not saying you had to stick by with, you know, a one physician for your whole life. Um, but someone that you can trust, um, someone you can be vulnerable to, be honest to in terms of what's really going on uh, in terms of your, 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 your life, in terms of, you know, any kind of medical condition you may have. It's very important to have a trusting relationship. And if you can't do that with your current physician, I do really recommend finding someone, you know, that you can have that relationship with because mm-hmm. that goes a long way towards your health. Um, is it disrespectful to ask you what your craziest case was? No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. If you don't want to talk about it, obviously no names, but if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. But uh, I'm very curious, like, in your... In your clinic clinical experience, what's been kind of some crazy cases or a sure? Crazy I case? mean, I could share. I don't think it's necessarily a learning point. Um, I've had a patient that has threatened me, you know, <laughs> before. Uh, so, but yeah, it's those are not the patients you see every day. And to be honest, for me, that's not like the most memorable patients. The most memorable patients for me are are the people uh, that I see that really want something out of their care, um, and they're really coming. Uh, openly they're o- they're open to their doctor to their physician to have the best care that they can get those are the people that i remember that you know my clinician made a difference for in their lives and impacted their care and th- that's the reason i'm going into this field in the first place to be an impact for people like i've seen uh my role models do for others mm. um who are some of your role models if you don't mind me asking <laughs> sure um to, uh, to be specific uh, i guess like during my medicine uh, rotations um there's certain doctors that i've uh, spent several weeks with when you're working in a hospital um 
usually as a resident and even as a student on some of these rotations, you're working six days a week, maybe 12 hours a day, um, and you're spending an extensive period of time of your life with the same people. Um, and during that time, I, I've grown close with a lot of attending physicians, these people that have gone through medical school, residency, you know, and, you know, working in the hospital or in a specialty. And they, for some of these people, they really, you know, impacted my life, just the way I see them, you know, interact with patients, the people that, you know, have patients and take time out of the day to uh, talk to those patients. Um, and, you know, no matter how much paperwork they have at the end of the day, if their focus is still their patients, those are the people I see as a role model. For example, when I was studying abroad in Costa Rica, I worked in a clinic there. And one doctor I had there, um, he was see maybe 40 to 50 patients a day. It's an unheard of number here in yeah. America. Um, and he was working maybe 12 hours a day in the clinic uh, just to make sure that all these patients were seen. Um, and it was inspiring to me knowing that like, even in you know this country so far away, people are so caring for you know uh, people in their community. And at the same time, I saw the, the gratification that people had just coming to see this doctor um, in the clinic. Um, and I knew like, at that point, I knew that I wanted to delve deeper into this field to see what this is really like. And to be honest, I don't have any any major regrets choosing this profession. Of course, oh, that's that's great to hear, man. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very very uh, pleased to hear that. I wouldn't want uh, a doctor out in the world who has regrets. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, are there uh, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of discuss? Like, is there anything that we left out, maybe? Um, I, I can't think of something off the top of my head, but I will say this, you know, um, I wanted to stress again, um, it's really good to look up information online or wherever resources you may have available about a condition that you've been diagnosed with or something you had questions about and bring that information, um, to your, uh, you know, the person in charge of your medical care, um, having a conversation and starting a conversation, uh, goes a long way in terms of metal, um, you know, healthcare in general. It's not a one way, you know, the clinician is giving our information, or our recommendations to you, but we're working together as a team. Um, just wanted to stress that the team effort in medicine really makes it what it is. Great, man. Um, thank you. Thank you again for coming on to the podcast. Um, is there anywhere that uh, listeners can, can find you or can get in touch with you if they have any questions? Uh, maybe social media or something. Um, so wh whatever, uh, you know, you have in your Honest Health uh, podcast, uh, you know, your comment section comment or anything section. like yeah, that, yeah. I will definitely reach out to and sure. be active in that. Okay, awesome. Great to hear, man.